0: Um, right, welcome to this last lecture in this small, short series, and thanks again for dealing with the day change. Um, there are two classes coming up, Russian Formalism and Czech Structuralism, next week. We are going back to Tuesdays, unless improbably yet another thing occurs, which um, causes a day change. But it's meant to be on Tuesday at 12, unless you hear otherwise, in Seminar Room B. And um, after that, reading microtexts. That will be in week six largely prose, microtexts, and very micro, indeed, some of them. Um, I promised those of you who were here last week that this was going to constitute a philosophical approach to comparative literature, rather than a more exemplary one. So here it comes. I want to talk about a practice that's involved in all reading, yet has hardly ever been the subject, the explicit subject of literary theory. Comparison, in the broadest sense of the term, is the literary process which enables us to perceive similarity and difference. Smells and ideas cannot be distinguished as such without perceiving their similarities and differences to other smells and ideas. Will cannot be exercised without comparing options. To choose comes from gusto and involves, as Sainsbury's would have us do, tasting the difference. A critic describes a literary work as, for example, mimetic only after comparing it with both life and other literary works, which are perhaps less mimetic. Matthew Arnold, who coined the term comparative literature as a translation of the French littérature Comparée, claimed in his inaugural lecture at Oxford in 1857 that no single event, no single literature is adequately comprehended except in relation to other events, to other literature. In our own century, and I do mean this one, Richard Rorty wrote, Good criticism is a matter of bouncing some of the books you have read off the rest of the books you have read. He might have added that good reading of criticism involves bouncing the criticism you are reading off the rest of the criticism you have read. Listening to lectures, of course, likewise. Yet this, as I've just been outlining it, is not comparison in the strict sense of the term. Look at the first quotation on your handouts. This, by the way, is going to be the only time in this lecture that I'm actually directing you to your handouts. Most of the rest of the quotations won't even appear in the lecture and are there just to create atmosphere, provide an aid to contemplation and keep you occupied if you get bored. This, um, the first point, is my own definition of comparison in the strict sense of the term which involves paying a similar quantity and quality of attention to a discrete number of objects in order to determine their similarities and differences with regard to possession, lack of possession or degree of possession of a particular quality. A minority of literary criticism practiced is of this kind. Both of the international, interlinguistic, interartistic kind, which goes under the banner of comparative literature, and of the criticism which doesn't. The minority may be slightly larger in the first case, but it is still a minority. A comparison of George Eliot with Georges Saint on a given topic may have the interest but also the complication of involving linguistic and cultural variables which are not directly connected to whatever topic it is you are comparing them on. A comparison of George Eliot with Elizabeth Gaskell which involves far fewer circumstantial variables may therefore be more cleanly comparative and therefore more comparative. But only relatively. Any two writers have differences of circumstance, and any comparison has to be performed against a ground, a background, which is to some degree abstract. But how often does one do symmetric comparison? After all, what I've been talking about is symmetric comparison, paying a similar degree of attention. Degree in, and. Um, quality of attention. Asymmetric comparison, which involves paying a different quantity or quality of attention to two comparanda, things which are compared, <coughs> has strong similarities with a lot of criticism which isn't usually considered comparative. For example, if you study the influence of Miguel de Cervantes' El ingenioso Hidalgo Don Quixote de la Mancha on Nikos Kazantzakis' Vios que politia to Alexis Sorba, the life and adventures of Alexis Sorba, that kind of study, that kind of influence study, is actually um, structurally most resembles um, studies which aren't normally considered comparis- uh, comparative. For example, the representation of attitudes towards sex in rural 1930s Greece in the nat- Latin novel. Because in both cases, you're looking for features of one complex object a novel in the first case, Don Quixote, or a social phenomenon, and aspect of a culture in the other, in a different work of literature. So, the discussion of any topic in literature involves a comparison of the form looking for X in Y. And the X in Y study is the template for much literary criticism. Very little of what is written on comparative literature therefore concerns comparison. The position of comparison as a topic in philosophy is also undeservedly obscure. No English language reference book of philosophy, the multi-volume encyclopaedias, the one-volume companions, of which I'm aware, has an entry for the term comparison. Despite the fact that comparison is as important a method to philosophy as it is to literary criticism, and also it is in itself fraught with philosophical implications. Therefore, all literary criticism is comparative in the broad sense. Most literary criticism, including most that gets called comparative literature, isn't comparative in the strict sense. Now, if any of you have done any reading on the subject comparative literature, you will know that it is described with almost reassuring regularity as anxiogenic makes you feel that English is a discipline which is relatively sure of itself. Look out for whether "complet" whenever you come across it, gets capital letters. There's no agreement on this. Articles coming out at the moment, sometimes there is even veering between um, "complet" with a capital C and L and small C and L within the same article. This anxiety about what comparative literature is is related to the fact that it can't be easily defined by either method or matter. In the 1970s, Robert Clements commented that comparative literature sometimes features in university curricula, but very few people know what they mean by the term. In 2006, Robert Wenninger claimed that nothing is written or published in comparative. Those words italicised. Now the problem of defining the subject by method I've already suggested most of what's done under its remit isn't strictly comparative therefore comparative literature world literature and general literature and if any of you are from or have any familiarity with the States you'll know that these terms are much more common there world literature general literature courses they're often imprecisely distinguished from each other as obshcha literatura Allgemeine Literature, Literature Generale, and Literatura universal are all imprecisely distinguished from the equivalents of comparative literature in those languages. The question then arises of whether comparative literature should not simply become the study of literature. Proponents of departments of literature include René Wellick and Austin Warren, who, in the 1940s, argued against the idea of national literatures. Quote, there's just literature. Fourteen years later, Welleck wished that we could simply speak of the study of literature and that there were, as Albert Thibaudet proposed, professors of literature just as there were professors of philosophy and of history. 2006, Jonathan Culler argued that the turn to culture cultural specificity, in other words, along what might be national lines, makes sense for national literature departments. The division of literature by national or linguistic boundaries was always rather dubious. But such divisions as these form a reasonable way of studying culture, this would leave comparative literature with the distinct role of studying literature. As the site of study of literature in general, comparative literature would form a home for poetics objections to such plans come from those who consider that literature should always be related to studied in relation to culture in a broader sense and to other art forms some consider in fact that the subject of comparative literature should not concern literature alone it should be the place where the relationship of literature to the visual arts and the and the sonic arts for example are studied it's also objected that the so-called general study of literature rarely fulfills that remit, often in practice consider, consisting of the study of European literature and its nearest relatives. Well, I mean, you could easily get around that problem. If what you are studying is a European literature course, then it should simply be called a European literature course, not general or world or comparative literature. But I also see no problem at all in studying European literature. They make sense together those national literatures they were made for each other both parts of the title comparative literature then imperfectly denote the subjects de facto remit so I would like at this point to make a proposal which cuts through the Gordian knot of many of the problems of definition I've just outlined If one were to conceive of academic departments as a city which is built up haphazardly from the Middle Ages, then I'm a zealous town planner proposing to raise the city to the ground and rebuild it on a grid plan. These are perhaps not serious academic proposals. They're highly unlikely to be adopted. Um, But they will at least illustrate my conception of what comparative literature is. So under my plans, my grid plans, each university would have two types of structure to be called, for example, faculties and divisions. The faculties would be named after disciplines or objects of studies which have a clearly correspondent discipline. So, for example, history for historiography, literature for literary criticism, biology and so forth. The divisions would correspond to categories of subject matter. So you've got to conceive a square, so you've got the faculties, let's say, along the top, divisions down the side. So for the arts and humanities subjects, India, Russia, Britain might have their own divisions. All students and all academics would be obliged to belong to at least one and rarely more than two faculties and divisions. So, for example, I would belong to the literature faculty and probably the British and Russian divisions. Someone working on Tolstoy's relationship to the artist Repin would belong to the faculties of literature and art and to the Russian division. Someone else researching English common law would belong to the law faculty and the British division. Such a warp and weft of discipline and subject matter would encourage both disciplinarity and interdisciplinarity. Literary theory would be taught in the faculty of literature using using examples from different languages, thereby avoiding the current replication of a lot of theoretical teaching between, for example, the English faculty and modern foreign languages. Someone currently belonging to a comparative literature department would simply belong to one or more divisions and either the literature faculty alone, or also to the history, sociology, philosophy, theology, art or music faculty. The theory of literary comparison would be taught in the literature faculty. The phrase comparative literature would be reserved to describe criticism, which in a fairly strict sense, compares literary works with each other. Those who simply, as Peter Brooks claimed of himself as a graduate student, are not comparing literature, just working in more than one language, would consider themselves to be working in literature. Those working in inter-artistic study would describe themselves as doing just that. The benefits are endless, by the way. It means that um, somebody studying modern foreign languages would be able to choose whether what they are interested in is linguistics or literature, or the history of the country concerned so somebody who ultimately wants to become a historian of France can become a member of the history faculty and the French division and do that from the outset I've already tried to define comparison as a verb but a comparison is both an action and its outcome making a comparison can refer both to the process of comparing and to the description of this process and its result. For example, if I say that a historian compares Hitler and Stalin, I can mean several things by that. I could mean that the historian is trying to discover the similarities and differences of those men or that he draws attention to such similarities and differences as he perceives them to have. This is an important ambiguity between the performance and the results of comparison, between the discovery of the results and their dissemination. If you're making a comparison, implicitly, you are publicising it. And therefore, the the lack of a clear distinction, in this case, between empiricism and rhetoric. Language is not necessary to do comparison, that it is to its description in which it can prove limited in English the language of comparison is peculiarly crude it tends to imply one of three positions which can be approximated to similarity difference and neutrality one compares something and with or to something else And is neutral. You compare cats and dogs. With suggests an expectation of similarity and to suggests an expectation of difference. Something is the same as something but it is is different to, from or than it. Apart from the fact that different to is more common in British English and... Um, and different than is more common in North American English. To implies orientation towards the differing other. From implies departure from it, and than implies an alternative to and possible displacement of it. The comparer should therefore compare and choose his or her words with care. In contrast to to contrast, Contrastare, to stand against, to compare means to regard or represent as analogous or similar, and intransitively to be of the same quality or value as. For example, gin compares with rum in alcohol content. Hence, examination questions, which of the kind that used to exist, that begin compare and, on the other hand, contrast Correspondingly a compare a somewhat archaic term now is an analogy equal or rival of something else Many terms for comparison stress likeness over difference to compare is to bring together parities Vergleichen makes gleich the same sravnitz makes ravni equal, and a is a simile as well as a comparison. The ancient Greek paravoli from para plus voli, a casting, throwing or putting, is a placing side by side or an analogy. In a parable, as in an allegory, something is made to stand for something else on the basis of similarity. Paravoli was borrowed in the Latin parabola, or comparison, and in post-classical Latin, it is an allegory, proverb, discourse, or speech, an expansion of meaning over time, which acknowledges the importance of comparison to rhetoric. The Latin comparare also means to place together, to couple, to unite, to treat as equal. By contrast, the modern Greek for the term comparison synchrono to judge together avoid the prejudgment of results which pertains to the words both compare and contrast whereas the latin instruction cp dot in practice often invites for contrast cf dot often uh, more invites open-minded comparison of course no two things are absolutely identical or absolutely different they attract comparative investigation because they are felt to be a metaphor in Todorov's sense of the term which is to say constituted by the tension of difference and resemblance separateness and communication in other words an initial comparison of them which is necessary in order to decide whether to pursue the comparison, will have suggested that the Comparanda are different, which is an adjective used rhetorically to indicate that two things are more different than you had expected, or more often that they are similar. And what we mean by that adjective is more similar than we had expected. The idea of an, of an initial comparison preceding further comparison indicates another ambiguity in the word, which can refer not just to a method, uh, sorry, um, a methodical process, but to the unexamined impression which precedes and prompts it. You decide to compare Beckett to Kafka in your essay, because you have already compared them. When comparing literary works originating in different places, differences between them are one of the assumed bases and one of the ends of the investigation. The background of divergence against which the similarities between them stand out and then also the finer points which stand out against those similarities. Description of difference in relation to an other is one aim of comparison, but description of difference in relation to the self isn't. The very impulse to compare complex objects produces the attendant impulse to stabilise at least one of them, rather than to pay attention to the instabilities and complexities of all of them simultaneously. So when you do comparative work, you tend to simplify one or both objects to some extent. Because if you spend too long comparing one, then you've lost comparative sight of the other. So that limits the degree of descriptive detail you can enter. And of course, an infinite um, description of the complexities of one object is to render it non-comparable. In addition, the arts, unlike the sciences, are infrequently able to make use of quantitative units of comparison, although they could do so more often than they do, and the availability of e-texts now and word searches allows for a lot more statistical analysis, or much easier statistical analysis. But insofar as we don't use numbers, we rely, as I say, on this crude vocabulary of identity, opposition, equilibrium and comparatives, rather crudely modified by intensifiers and superlatives. Most comparative cadences in literary study assert either identity or difference. For example, both Waiting for Godot and Happy Days rely on repetition in contrast to Beckett Pinter is persistently concerned with violence haven't really made very fine discriminations there like X Y does so and so in contrast to X Y does so and so but that's that's the common form of comparative statements the vague term relatively is used to indicate a relatively small degree of difference The phrases, just as, and it never is just as, or more conscientiously, rather as, cover a range of of degrees and types of similarity. Whereas covers a range of differences. And the descriptions I'm making at the moment are no more precise than what I am describing. Or little more. Or hardly more. Yet, in in explicitly comparative work, the degree of descriptive detail attained is crucial, since it determines what's described as a similarity and what's described as a difference. In practice, when you increase the level of descriptive detail, you often move from a similarity to a difference. It's salutary, therefore, to be reminded of the flexibility of these terms, similarity and difference, which are are such heavily used tools of thought and are supposed antonyms. Similarity is merely difference on a less detailed scale and the choice between them can be determined in the interests of rhetoric. Indeed, comparisons have long been associated with not only rhetoric, but odiousness. Odious of old being comparisonis, and of comparisonis engendered is hatred. Lydgate, 1430. In Shakespeare's works, comparison is repeatedly characterised as quibbling, equivocation, jibing illusion and scoffing analogy but if it's done conscientiously one condition of a methodical comparison being considered worthy of pursuit is that the things concerned are in fact comparable now what on earth do we mean by that adjective comparability always involves a degree of similarity in the Comparanda of course anything can be compared with anything else and comparable resembles similar and different in being a relative, not an absolute term, the applicability of which rests on a comparison. The same, therefore, is true of the term non-comparable and incomparable. Charges of non-comparability rhetorically assert that lack of interest or tactlessness, unfairness or some other wrong would be involved in pursuing a comparison. These are statements of value. The assertion that any one thing, rather than a combination of objects, is incomparable or beyond compare, implies that the qualities which it has in common with other things are trivial in comparison to its distinguishing characteristics and that if you nonetheless went ahead with the comparison, this would involve paying insufficient attention to those characteristics, which would therefore render the comparison either trivial or invalid. The assertion, you can't compare Salieri to Mozart, Of course, rests on a comparison, and it implicitly argues that their similarities are unimportant compared to their differences, and that to describe either would be at best uninteresting and at worst insulting to Mozart. Similarly, Orsino tells Viola in Twelfth Night, make no compare between that love a woman can bear me and that I owe Olivia. Sometimes people describe a work of art as incomparable, not just to express admiration for it, but also to imply that it is in the nature of the work's excellence to determine a mode in which it alone should be explored and which is by far the most valuable mode, the only valid mode in which to explore it. That is also what's meant by claims of uniqueness. The most extreme version of this argument is that the work's own terms are the only terms on which it can be understood. The implication of this, which is rarely embraced, is that the work uses a private language in Wittgenstein's sense and is therefore uh, incomprehensible. Comparatists assert both comparability and comprehensibility and the two terms are intimately linked. Peter Peter Sondi asserted that kein Kunstwerk behauptet, dass es unvergleichbar ist. Das behauptet allenfalls der Künstler oder den Kritiker. Wohl aber verlangt es, dass es nicht verglichen werde. No work of art declares that it is incomparable. At most, it is the artist or critic who claims that. But every work of art demands that it is not compared. But this is clearly wrong. Certain works of art clearly ask to be compared with others. James Joyce's Ulysses and Derek Walcott's Omeros to the Odyssey of Homer, for example. One entity of which incomprehensibility as well as incomparability is sometimes asserted is God. This is a claim made by several kinds of theism. The same compound assertion is made in order to express or advocate a sense of quasi-religious awe in relation to a non-divine subject, for example, since the mid-1960s to the Holocaust. A bill was recently proposed to the Israeli parliament which would outlaw comparisons to the Nazis. Assertions of non-comparability, as applied to combinations of objects, are often based on a sense that the way in which they're most likely to be compared will not generate valid, that other indistinct term, results. Neither apples nor oranges are proverbially asserted to be intrinsically um, incomparable, but they are asserted to be mutually non-comparable. Presumably because their similarities of size and shape generate the risk that they will be judged according to the same criteria and an orange would be unfairly criticised as being less crisp than an apple. In this sense the idiom can be contrasted with chalk and cheese which is more of a contrast. Hazlitt stated that comparisons are impertinent and lead only to the discovery of defects by making one thing the standard of another, which has no relation to it. Similarities should therefore, of course, not be allowed to obscure the differences which affect comparability. This is perhaps the sense behind the perfect rhyme in the roughly equivalent Serbian proverb, perediti babe i to compare grandmothers and toads. The charge of incommensurability denies that a certain type of measure can be applied to all of the proposed Comparanda. For example, Spanish has an idiom which disparages sumar peras con manzanas, adding pears and apples. Of course, anybody can count pieces of fruit, but the specific category of pear or apple is the proverb implies of limited interest the russian idiom prohibits the comparison of the warm with the soft since no single measure can be made of warmth and softness finally certain qualities are differently perceived by different people the hungarian i have no idea how to pronounce this is is Tastes and smacks suggests that the relative value of different objects can't be absolutely decided if they're judged on qualities which are differently felt by different individuals, rather as two smacks in the face can't be compared if they're experienced by different people. It's also the case that any comparison, therefore, has to be performed by one person. Non-subjective qualities can be determined as belonging to objects by different people in a division of labour. And then those findings can be compared by a third person making use of their descriptions. But for a comparison to take place, it has to take place in one mind. Relative unity of physical or conceptual place assists the equally important unity of time. Systematic comparisons require a succession of mental movements between wholes and parts in order to select the Comparanda to decide on which quality to compare them and to actually compare them. But the end result of comparison is generated in an instant in which the qualities of different objects are simultaneously present to the Comparer's mind. I suggested that today comparison is a minority pursuit, but it has played an important part in the development of criticism as a subject. Notably, in the European tradition, there is a long tradition of comparing the Greeks to the Romans, and then slightly later, from the early modern period, the ancients to the moderns. Comparison and criticism were connected more systematically in the later 19th century... when literary studies, particularly on the continent, were modelled on the evolving scientific disciplines. So, Literaturwissenschaft was modelled on Naturwissenschaft, the study of nature. Specifically, comparative literature was modelled on certain other subjects which had comparison in their titles, including comparative philology, comparative biology and comparative philosophy. Science, of course, uses comparison. It proceeds inductively through comparison. Experiments analyse a comparandum in relation to an isolated variable and observe deviations from the secundum comparatum or control. Comparative philology developed by observing similarities in languages which had hitherto been assumed to be unconnected and then using historical information to explain the connection or the reverse, inducing historical hypotheses from the connection. The results of these comparisons were sometimes explained in the dimension of time using a tree metaphor or a tree diagram. Indeed, tree-shaped comparativism has had considerable durability in literary study where it's tended either to point to similar social conditions generating similar literary phenomena or to posit direct influence between phenomena. More recently, Franco Moretti, the Italian critic and theorist, has described the history of British 19th century detective fiction in evolutionary terms. And he shows the results of his comparisons of novels in tree diagrams which show the convergence and divergence over time of different subgenres of detective fiction. The study of influence, which has been a more strong and enduring vein of criticism than social comparison, is necessarily asymmetric. We're back at looking at X in Y. Alexei Veselovsky, who founded the Department of World Literature at Moscow University in 1873, stated at the beginning of his book, The Western Influence in New Russian Literature, that the exchange of ideas, images, fables, artistic forms between the tribes and people of the civilised world is one of the most important things studied by the still young science of literary history. In 1961, Henry Ramac criticised French criticism for its emphasis on influence studies rather than comparison in the strictest sense, arguing that purely comparative subjects constitute an inexhaustible reservoir hardly tapped by contemporary scholars who seem to have forgotten that the name of our discipline is comparative literature, not influential literature. Culler argued that world literature courses that bring together the great books from around the world seem to base comparability on a notion of excellence so that comparison, rather than opening new po- possibilities for cultural value, more often than not restrict and totalize it. However, courses of world and general literature, in fact, don't necessarily assert the comparability of the works they studied. They study. If anything, they may purport to make the, principle, the to make this selection on the principle of non-comparability. In the phrase comparative literature, comparative is the attribute of literature. Yet, it is almost never understood in this way because the semantic meaning of the phrase has drifted apart from the compositional meaning. Exactly the same is true of vergleichende Literatur and сравnitelnäa literatura, although not literature comparé, in which the literature is the passive subject of comparison, compared literature. Clements notes that the equivalent East Asian terms are a compound essentially of two substantives, the Chinese Pi Chao Wen Sui and the Japanese Hikaku Bongaku and the Korean Pi Hak consist of comparison plus literature. The terms thus denote the scientific comparison of two or more literatures without the inclusion of adjectival modifiers. Perhaps if we followed suit and just talked about literature comparison, we might eliminate a great deal of discussion. On the other hand, Welleck said, there's little use in deploring the grammar of the term and to insist that it should be called the comparative study of literature. Everybody understands the elliptical usage. But I would argue that the phrase comparative literature does have a potential meaning which corresponds with its compositional sense. That is, literature which invites the performance of internal comparison. Or which to put it another way contains comparisons this is to use the noun comparison in a sense distinct from any in which I've already used it a process and its result what I mean by a comparison of a kind that can be contained by a work is a quality or set of qualities which can obviously or interestingly be compared with another quality or qualities in the same work and that work can't be properly understood without performing that act of comparison. Waiting for Godot is comparative between its first and second halves. In their presentation of parallel stories of two couples, Daniel Deronda, which I discussed at some length last week, is comparative literature. This might be the most useful and grammatically cogent application of that term. A comparison of novels as comparative works of literature... is a second-order comparison, similar to the comparison of ratios. Now, the comparison of ratios has the benefit of avoiding or confessing the variable of context. So, for example, to say Daniel's relationship to Gwendolyn is the equivalent in Daniel Deronda... of Birkin's relationship to Gerald in Women in Love is less problematic than claiming Daniel is like Birkin or Gwendolyn is like Gerald. Of course, even internal literary comparisons involve differences of context and all assertions of the similarities of two of the heroines of just that one novel, Daniel Deronda, Gwendolyn and al ...should be always contextualised by the two women's very different circumstances, their different native countries and races and musical talents. So even within one story in a novel, you need a simile along the lines of Gwendolyn is to her circumstances what al is to hers. So any comparison of the components of complex objects is nearly always a comparison of ratios. One is reminded that ratio is the etymological ancestor of reason. Comparing the comparisons of two stories of two times and, and potentially two countries makes this fact particularly clear. Of course, the questions remain of the relationship of Daniel Deronda to women in love and of the realist to the modernist novel. Gwendolyn and Alcarizi, in the same novel are comparable in a way in which Daniel and Birkin in two different novels aren't because they are parts of the same work of art. In this sense, the two levels of comparison, comparisons you do within works and between them, should be importantly distinguished. But I would say that is the crucial factor, not whether or not the two works of art are, in fact, of two different places. And In any case, why should the difference of place trump the difference of time, as it tends to do when um, using comparative literature only to refer to difference of place and sometimes of language. Most comparisons have one or both of two motives to compare the Comparanda. To do the comparison for its own sake and to explore the topic or topics on which they're being compared if you're really interested in the topic then you'll choose the Comparanda according to the topic and you won't necessarily compare them directly to each other so you can look at sex in author A and then sex in author B and they needn't be brought into direct comparison but Complex Comparanda, if if you're basing your comparison on the desire simply to compare two objects or two authors, you then have the problem that they generate an infinite number of qualities on which you could compare them. So you can't simply say, I'm comparing this novel and that novel. You have to say, I compare A and B with regard to C and D and E. Steiner posited an axis from literal translation of texts through imitation to what he called interanimation of texts within a national linguistic or broader cultural region. This interanimation is often what we're after when we do literary comparison. It can be observed in regard to particular topics or qualities on which two works might be said to compare notes so for example to take women in love and daniel Gironda, you can interestingly compare those two novels with regard to the following topics love lust married life double plotting tragedy comedy art politics intellectualism cosmopolitanism god children schopenhauer death, misanthropy, satire, horses, railways, symbolism, kitsch, amongst many others. Complex topics of comparison generate fields of comparison. What I mean by a field is a nexus of subject matter and methodologies within which the works of literature are then compared On possession of simpler qualities for example a consideration of the ways in which these novels are realist or otherwise would require more precise comparison of the possession or lack of possession of certain qualities which constitute um, realism in literature the concept of a topic of comparison can be replaced by any one of several metaphors each of which implies a slightly different method Sometimes you'll hear talk of an axis of comparison. This implies a quality according to degree of possession of which the Comparanda can be placed on a single axis. A fulcrum of comparison implies asymmetric comparison. So the idea is that by performing comparison, you're magnifying the force of a secundum comparatum through a lever which is resting on the tertium comparationis, that's the thing you're comparing them um, in relation to, to lift the first object into clearer view. For example, to lift Frankenstein, the novel, into clearer view by, the, by applying the force of Paradise Lost through a lever resting on the fulcrum of the fall, which is your tertium comparationis, the topic. On which you are comparing them comparisons of quantity for example amount of reference to God can to some extent be distinguished from comparisons of quality for example the conception of God in two different works however this distinction between quantity and quality which is apparently a distinction of quality can also be analyzed as one of quantity as in fact a difference of degree just as differences of degree can also be expressed as differences of kind. Clearer is the distinction between comparisons which do and don't employ an external external standard to the objects being compared. For example, Oxford and Cambridge can be compared on their distance from a third point, which is London and they can then be placed on a single axis which is that of distance in more complex comparisons however the result is more ostensive fr levis does a lot of comparative criticism he compares for example george eliot and dh lawrence on sex as follows the point may be made by saying they are not only equally unlike maupassant in their attitudes towards sex, they are unlike in the same way. Which is like saying that Oxford and Bicester both lie roughly in the same direction and distance from London. Masaki Hurai in her book Sisters in Literature compares the relationships of sisters in Eliot's Middlemarch, Forster's Howard's End and Lawrence's Women in Love to those of the relations of Antigone and Ismene in Sophocles's Antigone. She uses the analogy of musical variations on a theme. Now, no conversion to a single axis is possible here. Nor is it possible when you foster comparativism by, for example, teaching a course on tragedy. Jellif, who did this, said that constant reference was made both to the governing idea of the course, the idea of tragedy, and to the substance and treatment of each of the plays compared to one another. So the relations of Vishnuvi Sad, the Cherry Orchard, and Beckett's Happy Days to the third point, which is the idea of tragedy, these results can't be placed on an axis. But both plays can be raised into view on the fulcrum of tragedy. Or to use a different metaphor, they can both be viewed simultaneously from the tragic high ground. On the other hand, comparanda can be studied in relation not to any external standard but to qualities which are generated only by their very comparison this can be um, illustrated by anna karenina's reaction to her husband karenin when she gets home from moscow so she has just for the first time met vronsky Now, she has frequent contacts with many men, but none has yet made an impression on her. She meets Vronsky, he makes an impression. She then goes back to her husband in St. Petersburg. Now, she does not then compare both Karenin and Vronsky in relation to any third man or indeed any ideal standard of man. But she judges both men on possession of the quality attractiveness to Anna when the comparison is between Karenin and Vronsky of course this quality has as much reference to Anna as it has to those men and critics comparing literature unlike women comparing men should seek to exclude intrinsically personal reactions as far as possible However, comparisons of complex objects inevitably generate qualities which are peculiar to that comparison. In this sense, compared works of literature could be thought of as involved in a mutual process, as suggested by the Russian verb, a different verb of comparison, to correspond with or compare oneself, which unlike the other verb I mentioned, exists only in the imperfective aspect, and so it's a process, not a finite action. Wayne C. Booth classified the questions which can be asked of a text into those which it invites, those to which it responds, and those by which it is violated. Ideally, comparatists bring together works which are capable of conducting with each other an exploratory conversation on a single topic which is worth overhearing. This topic is not necessarily the one about which the individual works have most to say, but it's necessary that the the works compared find plenty to to say about it once they start their discussion. When... I'm sorry, I'm overrunning slightly. Go if you have to. When comparison is insensitively performed, it veers to one of two problems, exaggerating similarity and exaggerating difference. Fluellen does the first in his attempt to demonstrate the likeness of Macedon and Monmouth in Henry V. This is meant to be said, I believe, in a Welsh accent. If you look at the maps of the world, I warrant you shall find... ...in the comparisons between Macedon and Monmouth... ...that the situations, look you, is both alike. There is a river in Macedon, and there is moreover a river at Monmouth. It is called the Y at Monmouth, but it is out of my brains. What is the name of the other river? But it is all, tis all one. tis alike as my fingers is to my fingers, and there is salmons in both. That phrase "salmons in both" should stand as the warning against the ex- exaggeration of similarity in comparison. The, of, the significance of the results of Flouelin's comparison is, on his own terms, clear. The similarities between Macedon and Monmouth implies that their leaders are therefore similar, and that means that his king represents Alexander the First. So Alexander the Great. This would also mean that he has a legitimate claim to France. There is a point to his comparison. Literary comparatists, by contrast, sometimes face the question about their efforts, qui bono? In whose good is this being done? A given work resembles and and differs from another work in certain ways. So what? The comparatist can respond in one or both of two ways. She can try to establish the reasons for those similarities and differences in terms of space or time or influence. Or she can try to point to the results' significance. The latter, which might be related to the reasons, could lie in an improved understanding of those texts or of their genres or of their authors' lives, oeuvres, countries, languages and cultural modes. Literary comparisons worth the trouble of performing will therefore contrast to the Hatter's riddle to Alice at the tea party in Wonderland. Why is a raven like a writing desk? Neither the Hatter nor the March Hare have the slightest idea. Solutions can be found and have been found. Carroll himself suggested when he was asked, because it can produce few notes, though these are very flat. But these solutions do not individually or collectively indicate that ravens and writing desks are, in Todorov's sense, metaphors, that is, constituted by the tension between similarities and difference. Nor does the discovery of solutions to Carroll's famous riddle involve much interpretative risk. Because the degree of validity and profundity of the results found is immediately obvious. One factor which, in, which influences the outcome of comparison is the number of Comparanda. The results of comparing two objects are, likely to be cons- are more likely to be conceivable of a sing- conceivable on a single axis. Of which they may involuntarily be perceived to mark out the opposite ends. Modern English doesn't use superlatives unless at least three Comparanda are alluded to. But that doesn't prevent the illusion when you're comparing two things. That the thing which has more of a quality is most in possession of it. and We see this a lot in Shakespeare's English. Um, Taming the Shrew, Not to bestow my youngest daughter before I have a husband for the elder. There are only two daughters. Leavis exemplifies and embraces the exaggeration to which such comparison can give rise in literary criticism. Quote, Lawrence sees what the needs are and understands their nature so much better than George Eliot. In the comparison, in fact, we have to judge that George Eliot doesn't understand them at all. The addition of a third comparandum makes it more likely that the results will be conceived on a two-dimensional field. An English and a Russian novel may appear less strongly representative of England and Russia if you throw in a German, a Czech or an American novel. With reference to the third language, which used to be required of anyone on a comparative literature in the United States, Sorcy wrote, the third language, like an uninvited guest, points to the things that the two-language pattern leaves out. The apex of the triangle just determined is also um, the point from which a new angle opens up for measurement. Flewellyn might have had greater difficulty in demonstrating that King Henry was a second Alexander had he involved a third point of comparison. Bernheimer, an American comparatist, celebrates comparison for revealing external presences within the work. The voice of comparative literature, he says, is unhomely, and this very quality of dispossession, a kind of haunting by otherness, is this voice's great strength. David Ferris goes further. In celebrating comparisons which don't generate coherent results, he says, we compare what cannot be compared. Like any assertion of incomparability, however, this is either a relative statement or untrue. I noted at the beginning that that comparison is intrinsic to thought and to willed action. Given this, I would argue that it's worth sharpening your skills at comparison and consciousness of comparison's attractions and dangers in the intellectually challenging but practically sheltered sphere that is literary criticism. Such comparative criticism cultivates sensitivity because comparison requires empirical openness to the precise location of the centre of gravity between separateness and communication. The term comparatively is related to relatively, with relatively understood not just in relation to relativism, that isn't a necessary component of comparative thought, but to relationships, to the understanding of any phenomenon in its relevant contexts. At a political, at a social, at a moral level, the willingness to compare one thing or oneself with with another or others undermines absolutism. And it's an ethically sound aim of human interaction for individuals to respect their own and each other's quiddity whilst reaching to find maximum common ground with others. Moreover, ethical analysis can be assisted by comparative reference to moral benchmarks. Far from inducing ethical relativism, their use forbids it. Which is why I would say that one can compare other events to the Holocaust, and it is helpful to do so. Since comparison is involved in all thought, thought about comparison is necessarily self-reflexive. That's one reason why the use of comparison should form part of literary theory and why comparative literature courses as they currently exist, although not in this university, can serve as a home for literary theory. The difference of degree rather than kind between similarity and difference, the mind's tendency to look for equivalence, and the limited amount of attention you can pay to any objects which you compare applies to comparison in its broadest sense, from which comparison in its narrow sense is distinguished as much by degree as kind and is unconsciously performed in everything, from understanding linguistic difference to reading women in love in relation to all of the novels you can remember to choosing your lover. Thinking about comparison gives a better sense of where art fits into life, how it relates to it and how it compares to it. Thank you.